Hey, I'm Michael Wood, lead pastor at First West. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here in just a second, we're gonna dive into God's word and to see what it says about who he is, about who we are, and about the hope that can be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that today God's word will encourage you, it'll challenge you, and it'll allow you to see that no matter where we find ourselves, there's always hope because of Jesus Christ. So let's dig in and see what God has for us today in his word. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Have you ever really considered the significance of that statement that Jesus made as he was hanging there on the cross? Right, that in that moment that Jesus was at the height of his suffering, we see the depth of the immense love that he had for humanity. Right, as he's hanging on the cross, body beaten and bruised, nails in his hands and his feet, and yet in that place he says, Father, would you forgive these people because they have no idea what it is that they're doing? Forgiveness is a powerful word, isn't it? It's a powerful thing to experience the release of being forgiven of wrongdoing in your life. It's a powerful thing to come to a place in your life that you can extend forgiveness to someone who has deeply wounded you. For some of us, we have felt and continue to feel the power of unforgiveness in our life. That even at the mention of that word this morning of forgiveness, there's a name, there is an image, there is a moment in your past that comes to the surface that you think, I could never ever bring forgiveness to that situation. And yet all throughout this Bible, we see not just a call to forgive, but we see the heart of the author of this Bible, which is one of forgiveness. Over the next six weeks, I believe that we're going to do some deep soul level work in this area of our life. I think for some of you, it's going to be an incredibly difficult challenge to process through because of the weight of the hurt and experiences and relationships that have been broken in your life to to truly get to a place to experience freedom and forgiveness. But I believe that over the next six weeks, that if we lean into this of an understanding of the vertical forgiveness that we experience from God and the call for horizontal forgiveness in our lives among one another, that we truly can experience the freedom of forgiveness and live life in a way that for some of us we've never experienced over the last couple of decades because we've been in such bondage to bitterness. In these weeks, we're going to dive into the nature of God and his character and what it means that God would be a forgiving God. We're going to talk about the importance of us releasing others from the wounds that they have caused us, not sweeping under the rug or saying that it wasn't a big deal, but coming to that place of trusting that situation and that person to God and no longer allowing it to hold us hostage. Some of us, in a couple of weeks, we're going to dive in and We're going to talk about the importance of forgiving ourselves. 
Because that bondage that you have lived in has not been towards someone else. That bondage has been in yourself and something that you've done in your past or things that you've done in your past. And you've never been able to move past it. You've continued to find your identity and and what happened and what you did. And and we're going to see from God's word the importance of being able to not just understand the forgiveness that you have from God, but the forgiveness that we should show ourselves. Today we're going to begin by laying this foundation because we can never consider coming to a place of forgiving ourselves or being willing to forgive others or even coming to a point of approaching someone that you know you've wounded to seek their forgiveness in your life if we don't first understand the forgiveness that comes from God. So I want to invite you to take your Bible and go with me today to 1 Corinthians. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. No, we're done with that. Praise God. Go with me to Psalm 130 today. Psalm 130, as we would consider today this foundational understanding of who God is as a forgiving God, to know that is in his nature, that's who he is. And so in the weeks ahead, when we do this hard work of considering what it means for us to forgive others, we'll know that God is not asking you to do something that he doesn't do in and of himself. Today in Psalm 130, we're going to see that the psalmist writes about the redemption of Israel that is brought about by the Lord. And how turning to the Lord by faith with a recognition of our own sin, it leads to a place of restoration and redemption through forgiveness. I want to invite you to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word. We'll read the entire chapter, Psalm 30, verse 1 through 8. He says, out of the depths... I call to you, Lord. Lord, listen to my voice and let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are so that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord. I wait and I put my hope in his word. I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Israel. Put your hope in the Lord, for there is faithful love with the Lord, and with him is redemption in abundance, and he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. Let's pray together. God, we present ourselves to you as we have already today in a posture of brokenness before you, in a hunger to experience you, in an expectancy of what you long to do in us. And God, now as we open your word, we pray that Spirit of God, that you would work mightily in this time. That we would understand with crystal clarity that without your nature of forgiveness, your faithful love, your redemption in abundance, that we stand here today before you with no hope. But God, we're grateful that this word today is going to remind us that with you there is forgiveness so that you may be revered. God, we give ourselves to you. We open our hearts. We lay anything aside that would hinder all that you want to say and do in our lives today. This time is yours. Do as you please. In Christ's name. And God's people said, amen. You may be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. What does it mean for us that God is a God who forgives? There's different understandings of what forgiveness means. For some, the forgiveness is simply an idea of excusing the actions of the past. 
simply to sweep something under the rug or to simply overlook an action, a wound, a hurt, something that was said, a betrayal, just to overlook it and to assume that it's really not that bad. That's not what we find in the nature of what forgiveness truly is, and it's what we're going to see today in how God operates with his people. Today, the main idea I hope that we walk out of here with is simply this, that the forgiveness of the Lord brings redemption and freedom. The forgiveness of the Lord brings redemption and freedom. As we look at Psalm 130, the psalmist is writing here with really four different couplets. That's a poetry term there of two lines that are paired together. And so here we see eight verses. So you can imagine, right? One and two, three and four, five and six, seven and eight. And my hope for us today is that we examine the heart cry of this psalmist and the journey that they go on in discovering or being reminded of God's forgiveness. And it would be a help for us today in understanding his forgiveness towards us as well. First observation I want us to see from this first couplet of verse 1 and 2 is simply this, that without the Lord, there is no freedom of forgiveness. That without the Lord, there is no freedom of forgiveness. We see in verse 1, he begins here and he says, out of the depths, I cry to you. Lord, would you be attentive? Would your ear be attentive? Would you be attentive to my cry for help? We see that the psalmist here is in a posture of being completely overwhelmed by life. All of us in here have been there at one level or another. We have felt what life feels like when it is pressing in against us. Students, maybe it's that test that's coming that you just feel so overwhelmed by that ability to to understand the information, to perform in a way that you desire, more importantly, that your parents desire, right? You feel overwhelmed by it. Maybe when it's trying to find that first job, and the opportunities that are out there, but the struggle to know which one is right and you feel overwhelmed. Maybe it's the pressure of family, the struggles that you face in family, and you just feel completely overwhelmed. And he's saying, God, in that place, I'm just asking, would you just hear me today? I've walked with many of you through those moments, experiencing the loss of a loved one. Just saying, God, would you just hear my cry? Would you just hear me? We, we know what it's like to feel overwhelmed. But for the psalmist here, the context of this moment helps us know what it is that he's overwhelmed about. As we, if we go down to uh, the second couplet there in verse 3 and 4, we understand that he is feeling overwhelmed by the guilt of his sin. That's why he's in this place of fearing. It's not a job issue. It's not a boyfriend-girlfriend issue. It's not a financial issue. It is a moment in his life of a full recognition of his sin and his guilt before a holy and blameless God. And it's in that place that he is saying that is out of the depths. Some of us in here are familiar with Psalm chapter 40, verse 1 and 2. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned to me, and he heard my cry for help. And he brought me up from a desolate pit out of the muddy clay, and he set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. There the psalmist was speaking of God's faithfulness, that he pulled him up out of this pit, and he set him on solid ground. And here in chapter 130, it's the cry of one, not necessarily that's in a pit, but is feeling the waves of his guilt of sin crashing over into his life. 
And so in this place, he rightfully turns to the only one who can help in this moment. And it's to the Lord. You see, without the Lord, there is no freedom of forgiveness. There's no earning it. it. He is simply crying out to God to relieve this overwhelming guilt of wrongdoing in his life. I love as one commentator summarizes the posture of the psalmist here. He says, his life hangs upon the thread of the divine compassion. His life hangs upon the thread of the divine compassion of God. There's no other hope for, him, hope for him in this moment as he recognizes his guilt before God. And from these depths, which, which I think represent this, this significant divide between the, the psalmist and his sin and the holiness of God, he knows that without God, there's no hope. There's no way to deal with the depth and the amount of sin in his life. And there's an understanding that without God, there's no freedom of forgiveness. But to understand that without divine forgiveness, forgiveness that comes from God, there is no release from condemnation. Without this divine forgiveness, forgiveness that comes from God for his sin, there is no release from condemnation. Look at me in verse 3. Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that you may be revered. So here we, we see that, that this overwhelming feeling is, is an understanding of his, of his guilt before God. He, he asks this here in a rhetorical question. Implying that he knows that because of his sin and guilt, we are alienated from God. That no one can stand before God. One author says, that helps us understand that the idea here that, uh, if, Lord, if you kept an account of our iniquities, who could stand? The idea there of to stand before God is to be acceptable in his sight. He says, God, if you kept a record of our sin... If there's no divine forgiveness, then God, I stand in condemnation before you because of my guilt. You are holy and righteous and just. And my life has been one in constant disobedience to you. And because of that, there is no hope for me outside of your divine forgiveness. Psalm 51, a well-known chapter of David's there, confession and repentance of his actions with Bathsheba. He says there, God, against you and you alone have I sinned and done this evil in your sight so that you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. For David, there was a right perspective of who he was and his sin before this holy God. And he says, against you and only you have I sinned, God. And you are right. Hear what he's saying there. You are right when you pass judgment on my sin. David recognizes the psalmist recognizes that that sin, that God rightfully judges that sin, that God rightfully can keep a record of our iniquity. This is why last week I shared with you, it's a reminder from John chapter 3, verse 18, that Jesus, with that idea of us being alienated before God, uses the word condemned. You may remember, as I said, I read it last week, but anyone who believes in him is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son 
of God. It gives us a hint. We'll get more to this at the end of our time together of where the source of that forgiveness comes from. But it's that recognition that outside of divine forgiveness, outside the work of, uh, of, of the gospel, uh, there is no forgiveness to be found. There is only condemnation and the inability to stand as acceptable before God. And I want us to feel the weight of the significance of this moment of standing before God, alienated from him in our sin. Two weeks from today, as we begin this journey of talking about what it means for us to forgive others that have wounded us. We're going to look at the parable of the unforgiving servant. Some of you may remember that parable. Jesus is telling an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, a spiritual meaning. And he's talking about the importance of understanding our forgiveness that God has shown towards us and how the overflow of that should be our forgiveness towards others. And he uses this story of a king and, and a man who is in great debt to the king. And it's a picture that he's giving us here of our standing before a holy, perfect God. And in that moment, when he's illustrating the debt that exists because of our sin before God, Jesus uses the highest possible currency in that culture when talking about the amount. The biggest, the biggest dollar bill, if you will. The highest amount of currency. And the number that he uses to show the amount is the largest number that is known in the Greek language. So Jesus there is giving us a hint in this earthly story with a heavenly meaning to understand that our debt before God is more immense than you can ever imagine. In fact, I think it's why the psalmist says in Psalm chapter 25, verse 11, he says, Forgive my iniquity, for it is immense. If you were to consider the pattern, the rhythm of your life, the choices that you've made, the things that you've looked at, the conversations that you've had. It doesn't take us real long to be able to identify with that verse, does it? God, my iniquity before you is immense. It is immense in quantity. I look at my life and I see a consistent pattern of me choosing my way over your way. God, it is immense in the depth of my sin as I recognize things in my life that I have done that, like David, I look at him and just say, that was evil. Lord, if you kept a record of sin, who could stand? But that's what sin does. It keeps a record. I love Tim Keller, and he's got a pretty new book called Forgiveness. It's a great book that is... is, is um, been a good guide for me in this journey that we're going here through forgiveness. But he talks about the reality of that, that sin or that wrongdoing and, and how we as individuals can keep that record of iniquity in our life. Listen to what he says. It won't be on the screen, so you got to listen well. But I want you to listen to, to, to how he walks through this. He says, what makes forgiveness difficult is that sins create a record. A residue of liability or obligation. For example, if someone steals something from you or wrongs you in some significant way and is caught, he might say, well, that happened last week. It's in the past. You, however, would feel very strongly that the sin against you created a continuing debt, liability, or obligation that does not pass away with time. The person who wronged you continues to owe you. Now listen to what he says. Sins create a record. They do not just pass into the air and vanish. The psalmist then is saying that our sins create a record with God that will have to be paid up on judgment day. 
For some of you, this might be a grace gift from the Lord today for you to, for the very first time, understand or for you to be reminded that when we sin against God, yes, God is a loving, grace-filled, merciful, forgiving God, but that does not mean that he excuses sin. He does not sweep sin under the rug. No, there is an understanding that when we sin before God, we have sinned before him. And he's saying, it, the psalmist is saying at this place, God, that if you held to that record, if there is not something that steps into this situation, I am completely alienated from God. And I will be held in account for that record. But here we see in verse 4 the nature of this. Grace-filled, merciful, forgiving God. Verse 4, but, but with you there is forgiveness so that you may be revered. I want to remind you to this point that the psalmist is writing, Jesus' incarnation has not happened. Jesus has not showed up. There is an expectation of a Messiah that will come, that will restore all things and bring God's kingdom. But there is no understanding for the psalmist here of, well, yeah, God's a forgiving God because Jesus died for me. I want you to feel this moment as the psalmist says, not that I'm hoping for forgiveness, I'm wishful for your forgiveness. There is an understanding of fact that God in your nature, you are a forgiving God. And so when we see the work of the gospel in Christ coming in his death, burial, and resurrection, it's an expression of who God is. He is a forgiving God. We see that in the journey of the Old Testament and how God over and over again is offering forgiveness to the Israelites when they walk in disobedience. And I'll tell you, it is eye-opening to me when there are people in this world that pride themselves on their unwillingness to forgive someone who has wronged them as a sign of strength in their life. This attitude of, well, I'm not letting them off the hook. I don't have to let them off the hook. I'm better than that. And it's almost as if they take this pride and this sign of strength in their life, that they are someone who would never steep down to this place of forgiveness. And yet here we have the God who created all things by speaking them into existence, the Alpha and the Omega, the one from eternity past into eternity future, the one who is over all things and by his hand sustains all things. And it is in his nature of one who offers forgiveness. Understand that God in his righteous justice has a right to keep record of wrongs. He has every right to fully punish us for that lengthy record. And yet in him we find mercy. Daniel Estes says this, people who do not live up to the Lord's justice can cast themselves on his mercy because God's grace is greater than human guilt. That's the gospel. And today, as you read that quote on the screen, as you hear it come from my lips, that people who do not live up to the Lord's justice, do you know who that is? It's you. And it's me. But in that place, we don't have to just stand there alienated from God, but the invitation that we can, we can, we can, we can cast ourselves on his mercy because his grace is greater than our guilt. What is the response in verse 4? so that you may be revered. When we grasp the forgiving nature of who God is, it should lead us to a place of fearing the Lord. 
Not fearing him in a place of being scared before him, right? That wouldn't make sense for the psalmist to say that. Understanding that his sin has been paid for, it's been atoned for, there's forgiveness to be offered. That would seem to do the opposite than to cause someone to be more scared or more fearful of an almighty God. But the idea here is this joyful awe, this, this, um, this wonder before this transcendent, the transcendent greatness of who God is. And so let me just give you, this is kind of a side word here for us today. He is pointing here to the forgiving nature of who God is, a recognition of his sin and the relationship of his sin before a holy God and God's mercy towards him and forgiveness that is offered. And he says, in light of this, you may be revered. The idea here is to ascribe worth. It's speaking of worship here. And I would say confidently today that if there is a void of worship in your life, I'm not just talking about singing. I'm talking about the way that you live your life. Do you live in reverence to God? Do you live a life of obedience to him and worship? But, but at a minimum, we, just at a minimum, we could talk about coming in here and singing and proclaiming God's goodness and greatness with our lips to his heart. If there's a void of worship in our lives, it reveals either an ignorance to the forgiveness that God has shown towards our sin or an apathy to the forgiveness that God has shown towards our sin. And I would just use that as a heart check for you today to say, am I living a life of worship? When I come to this place together corporately with brothers and sisters in Christ, am I engaging in worship? I'm not saying that you're going to come up here and be a part of the praise team or in the choir, but I'm saying is there an expression of your heart and worship to God because you recognize the immensity of your sin and that the nature of God is one that forgives. But you, with you there's forgiveness that you may be revered. And with that forgiveness comes this heart of worship, and I believe it comes a desire in this restored relationship before God. Look with me in verse 5 and 6, this third couplet of 4. He says, I wait for the Lord. I wait and I put my hope in his word. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Have you ever experienced that of waiting for the sun to rise? Maybe for some of you hunters in here. You've waited for that time to click, for shooting hours to begin, right? You get there an hour early because you don't want to scare the deer. You get into your stand, and it is the longest hour of the year, isn't it? Just waiting, waiting. All that anticipation that is building, right? That's one level. But for some of you in here, you've worked the night shift before, haven't you? And you're there, and it's, you're alone. It's quiet, and it's dark. And about 4 a.m. in the morning, right, there is a desperation that begins to grow. Please, Jesus, just bring that sun up. That's all I'm asking, right? I just want to go home and go to sleep. I just want to bite to eat. I just want to be done here, right? There's a desperation that is growing. And here we see this desperation. And hear this. More than watchmen wait for the morning. This desperation. But notice the desperation is not here for a removal of the shame. It's not here for a desperation for a removal of the pain of the actions of the past. The desperation is for God himself. I wait for the Lord. I don't wait even for the freedom of forgiveness. I wait for the Lord. There is a restored relationship in this place. Psalm chapter 32 verse 2 says, How joyful is a person 
whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. I want you to see the significant change for the psalmist here who began in verse 1 with, Out of the depths I cry to you. I'm overwhelmed by the guilt of my sin. God, would you just allow your ear to be attentive to my cry? And to now he's saying, Lord, I wait for you. I long for you. I desire this restored relationship, one that is now defined by joy. This is the power of the forgiving nature of God, that it restores us into a right relationship with him. And this all comes because of his redemption. Look at me in verse 7 and 8. We see the shift here now from the psalmist thinking individually with him and God, and now he's going to turn his attention to the nation of Israel. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for there is faithful love with the Lord, and with him is redemption in abundance, and he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. I want to remind you, I've said it earlier, but remind you of the pattern of Israel's living in their relationship with God. Over and over and over and over again, the rhythm of their life was one of disobedience to God. It was immense in its quantity. It was immense in the depth of its wickedness. As Moses goes up to meet with God there in a burning bush and The Israelites are at the base of the mountain creating a golden calf, a false god to worship, even after God has delivered them. And there's forgiveness to be had. He says, I'm going to provide a nation for you, a land for you, a promised land for you to live in. But continue to walk in obedience to me. Do not give in to the traditions. Do not give in to the idol worship. Do not give in to living in a way that dishonors me. And over and over again, we see this pattern of the Israelites choosing to live life their way and not God's way. And there's forgiveness to be had. Why? Because with him is faithful love. This is a covenant term here for his people. And in him, there is redemption. I love this phrase. In him, there is redemption in abundance. Let me say this today. You can't out God's grace. His mercy is evermore. When we come back to him, no matter how far we've sinned, no matter how much we've sinned, when we come back to him with that true heart of repentance, of calling our sin for what it is, not expecting him to excuse it, not expecting him to overlook it, but when we call our sin for what it is, when we recognize the record of our iniquity before him and we present it to him with an authentic heart and we say, God, here it is. With you, there is no hope. God, would you forgive me of my sin? Would you show divine compassion and forgiveness towards me? His grace is greater still. For some of you today, there's been that moment in your life when you recognize at some point that you had sinned against a holy God and you said yes to him. You gave your life. Just like with John Parker following through in, in believer's baptism today, showing that there's been that moment of turning his life to Jesus and bringing his sin before the cross and accepting that forgiveness. But as I tell you all the time, it's a reminder for us that the gospel is more than just in that moment of your surrender. The gospel is for us every single day. 
no matter what the last two weeks has looked like, no matter what the last six months has looked like, that we come back to the gospel and we bring our sin to him and we receive that divine forgiveness and that restored relationship only because of his faithful love and because he has redemption in abundance. Some of you today, in response to the preaching of God's word and the work of the Spirit in your heart, is you need to come once again to him in a posture of brokenness, calling your sin for what it is, and laying it before him and seeking his forgiveness. And look with me in verse 8. And he will redeem Israel from all its iniquity. In the relationship of Israel and holy God, who was the one who had done the wrong? Israel. If anyone had a responsibility to make the relationship right because of wrongdoing, who was it? Israel. And yet here we see the forgiving nature of our God and that it says that he himself, he is going to be the one that will redeem Israel. And in verse 8, we see the forgiving nature of God. We see a wink here from Psalm 130 to the nature of what the Messiah is going to come to do. Not to come to be served, but to be a servant and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Zechariah would say there, as, as Mary is pregnant, as this one who would come, this Messiah who would come, he would say that this one that is coming will redeem all of Israel from her sin. That he himself would do it. This is why we revere God in light of his forgiveness. Because we know we bring nothing. Nothing to the table. This is why we say that this is love. Not that we love God. That makes too much sense because of who he is and what he offers. But true love is that God loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. The true nature of love is that he himself will redeem all of Israel. And today the hope for you is that he himself will redeem you when you confess your sin before him. Why? Because it's in his nature. In the New Testament, there are two prominent words that are used for this idea of forgiveness. The first one is charisomai, often used by Paul. And kind of the root word there is the word charis. That's a good word, isn't it? It's my daughter's name, all right? Uh, but it means grace. And it's the understanding that forgiveness is not dealing with someone in some calculated way, but it's a grace gift. It is something that is offered from one to another, not because they have earned it, not because they have merited it, but it is a grace, an unmerited response, a grace Gift And often that's the word Paul uses when he speaks of forgiveness. And we recognize that, right? That forgiveness from God is a grace gift. But the word that Jesus so often uses and James uses when speaking of forgiveness is the word offices. Offices. The idea there is that of remission. It is, it's the idea to release someone from a legal obligation or debt. Just like the parable of the unforgiving servant, right? That the king is going to release the man. He is going to release the debtor from his debt. The debt is no more. It's a complete forgiveness that has been offered. But the understanding of that word that is used for forgiveness, I want you to catch this today. 
that every time that word is used of forgiveness to relieve someone of an obligation or a debt, it always comes with the understanding that there is a cost. There's a cost to it. And what we understand about the nature of that word and what we understand about the nature of that cost, that the cost is paid by the creditor, not the debtor. It's not that the one who, who, who is the creditor to which the person is in debt to, it's not that they just do away with it. It's that that debt has to be paid. And the act of forgiveness that we see from God is one in which the gospel says absolutely that price is paid. And the nature of his forgiveness and the heart of that faithful love and that redemption in abundance is one in which he says the debt that you owe you have no ability to pay. There will be forgiveness that is offered, but the cost will be paid. And I will put it on my son who will hang there on a cross, beaten and bruised, nails in his hands and his feet, and will look out on those that have just taken him to death, and he will say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Would you bow your heads with me today? Today, I just want to give you a moment here. For some of you, you need to respond by faith right now in this moment. You recognize that your sin before God is immense and that you have no hope to stand before a holy, perfect, eternal God. And yet today, you've heard the forgiving nature of this God and his love for you. He has paid the cost that you owe and he has put it on his son Jesus, and in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he was that atoning sacrifice, paying that debt on your behalf. And right now in this moment, you can by faith put your trust in God. Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth that Jesus, you are Lord, and I am ready to turn my life over to you. Maybe today there's been that moment in your life, but honestly, you've just been living life your way and just kind of affirming some factual truth in your mind that God's a forgiving God. And with that, you're living in a way in which your life communicates. You think God's just excusing your sin. He's just overlooking it. It's not going to be that bad. And today you've been reminded again of the significance of your sin. and the overwhelming nature of God's grace on you. And my prayer is that it would stir in you a heart for worship, a life of worship and obedience to him, putting your hope in his word and walking in obedience to him, and a life of, of just of waiting on him, longing for him. In just a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together, such a fitting day. The scripture is clear that we're not to do it flippantly, but we are to come to the Lord's table with the right heart, with the right perspective. And today, as you continue in this moment of prayer, some of you today, instead of taking the Lord's Supper, you need to take Jesus because there's never been that moment in your life that you've trusted in him. The Bible's clear that the Lord's Supper is to be taken by those that are in Christ. It is for believers. It is those that by faith have received the forgiveness of their sin. And, and today, if you don't know if that's you, you don't know if you should take the Lord's Supper, then 
settle that right now in this moment and say yes to him. But also it's a moment for us as believers to come to this place of desiring to clear any obstacle in our relationship, our intimacy with God, confessing sin before we take the bread and the cup. So, Lord, today as we come to you, I pray, Lord, that we would feel the heaviness of our sin, the immensity of it. Because, God, I truly believe that unless we see the ugliness of our sin, we will never truly grasp the beauty of your grace. And Lord, we do believe that if you kept record of sin, we couldn't stand before you. There's no way we would be acceptable before you, but with you there is forgiveness. And so Lord, we we stand in that forgiveness today. We stand that, that in the forgiveness of our sins, there is a righteousness from you that allows us to stand before you. So today, God, we're grateful that you are a God who forgives no matter how immense our sin is. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, We hope, again, that you were uh, encouraged by what God had to say for you and for your life. I just want to extend an invitation for you today. Maybe today you realize that you need Jesus in your life. Maybe today you just need to take that next step in your spiritual walk, or maybe you've got a spiritual need. And I want you to know that we would love to come alongside you and serve you any way that we can. Feel free to reach out to us at firstwest.cc, or you can call the church, 318-322-5104. And we would love to help you in what God is doing in your life. Have a great day.